All right. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Talent Acquired. I'm your host, Chris Nikiso, where we bring you the stories and strategies of candidates, hiring managers, and recruiters. And today, I'm very excited to be joined by Larry Satterfield, who has 20 plus years in the video collaboration industry, among other uh, industries as well. And Larry, you've got a very long background. And so I'll start off with where you started in the collaboration space, which was you worked at Tamburg, where you were the VP of sales, and then promoted to president of the commercial sales. And in 2010, Tamburg sold to Cisco for $3 billion in an acquisition. And then you became the VP of commercial sales for the collaboration division at Cisco. And then from there, you went to a startup called Akano, which is a video conferencing software. And after three successful years there, you sold the business to Cisco again for 700 million. And then after you're running collaboration, you make your way to start up Jazz Networks, which is now Bion, a uh, physical and cybersecurity company, helping to build out their sales teams and go-to-market strategies. And now, Larry, we sit here and you're retired. <laughs> Did I miss anything? <laughs> well, I think you pretty much captured it all, Chris. I think I would add a couple of things here. Um, the uh, First of all, at the end, the Jazz Networks became Ava. Ava, okay. Actually, so there was a Bion, which was a physical security play, and Jazz, which was a cybersecurity play. They joined and they became Ava before I ultimately retired. I like to say the same that I joined the collaboration space with my move into Tamburg, but the truth is, I was in collaboration prior to them even calling it collaboration because I worked for. Bell Atlantic and Northern Telecom in the telecommunications space, which is what they used to call it. So I'm aging myself a little bit. I was trying that, not to do that. I'll let you do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be generous. <laughs> you were being very generous that I started in, with the Tanberg, but uh, the, I, I can't discount those telecommunication years. I mean, Northern Telecom was a great company at the time. Bell Atlantic became Verizon, as you know, but Northern Telecom is no longer even around anymore. So so telecommunication became collaboration somewhere in the middle of that. It's funny, you know, we've known each other for a while now, but I've also even known you prior to that just by all the buzz in the industry of folks who have worked for you. And a lot of people in many eyes see you as like the collaboration expert slash guru in, in building teams, go to market strategies as, as, you know, the success you've had over the years. And, and some even say, no joke, real life sensei which I actually don't disagree with that statement because I've had the privilege to like spend time with you. So you're being generous. I, I feel I, like, well, I have to butter up all my guests, right? <laughs> to okay. get the goods. So <laughs> you're being, I wish I was that good. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this episode, we're going to be diving into your, to your sales career. And, and, and really it's a fascinating one because you've had so much success. And, you know, really what we want to know for the audience is it's a two-part question. What was your first sales job? And what got you into sales? We're really going way back because that had nothing to do with collaboration, my, my sales job. And what really got me into sales? It was totally by accident. I was uh, finished with school and I came and I ended up working for a company called Liberty Mutual Insurance Company, which is still around. So my first real sales job was selling insurance. And I got a job with Liberty Mutual and it was kind of an service administration type job. And I was watching all the sales guys coming in and out of the office. At that time, I was 22, 23 years old or so. 
And I was making X amount of money. I think it was like $9,000 a year. <laughs> that go, that tells you how far back it is. That goes a long way and, back then, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And they seem to be making a lot more and seem to have a lot more freedom. But I showed some success at doing the job that I was in of upgrading customers, you know, upgrading their insurance policies. Mm. And so a sales manager took a liking to that and decided that they would offer me a sales job. And so from that point on, I noticed the freedom you get as a seller. I noticed the amount of money that you can make because you're getting paid commissions. And so it was about money and freedom. At the end of the day, money and freedom drove me to fall in love with the idea of selling. And I stayed in, stayed in sales from that point on. Yeah. And for a lot of the professionals out there that are getting into sales or, you know, like when I was out of college, like you just don't know what you're going to do or what you want to do, right? You're just trying to like make money so your parents get off your back at the end of the day. Like that's goal number one, to get your parents off your back, but you don't mind taking some Costco cards in the in the interim. And so <laughs> I think that for all the, the young professionals there, what are some of the challenges that you face when you first get into sales that you, you know, you have to get through? It's inevitable. There are a lot, but the main ones really, I think, come down to two things. One is you have to become really self-aware. Can you handle no? Can you handle being rejected? I found early on that rejection just, you know, it bothered me that I lost, but it didn't bother me in a personal way. So that, that's number one. You got to get self-aware and understand how you're going to feel when you get rejected. Because remember in sales, you know, if you're good, you know, you're going to get rejected three out of every four times. Do you remember your first rejection, Larry? I absolutely do. I was selling insurance. You never forget your first. You don't, <laughs> you know, matter of fact, because your first, you always think it's going well. And um, I, you know, I can remember going into a family's house and remember back in those days, people actually let you in their house. Yeah, now they won't. Sell them insurance. <laughs> Unless you're Amazon. Sell them insurance. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Unless you're Amazon. And this family was, you know, all I had life insurance, auto insurance. They were going to buy the whole package. And, it was, you know, I walked out without the signature, but all this hope and, you know, they all but signed it. And I realized that you better not walk out the house without them signing it. But I walked out without them signing it and I never heard from them again. I couldn't get a return call. <laughs> but what about like, for example, my first time was like, I actually got hung up within like the first nine seconds. <laughs> like, I don't even think I got my full name out. <laughs> Yeah, those rejections. <laughs> That's so those are tough for a lot of young professionals to deal with because it's like you're trying to generally see if there's a way to help, but you don't even get to that level, like not even close. And that sometimes can be tough. And for some other some reps, it happens more often not than others. Do you remember that happening in your career where that first like hard rejection? Yeah, those, you know, they come so fast. And they come so brutal, like you said, in nine seconds or so. When back in those days, we were actually more than calling on the phone. We were actually going out to buildings and you could walk kind of freely into any building. Yeah, you were like door to door sales. Exactly. Door to door. And you go up on the elevator and, you know, you try to get a hold of somebody. So it was face to face rejection. Usually it was from a receptionist of some sort or an administrative person of some sort. I didn't take those kind of things personally. I was never a big phone calling person. So the idea of getting on the phone and just dialing for dollars was not what I thought was a, an effective way. I thought once people saw me that they 
more likely let me in. I don't know. Something I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> well, I will tell you this, in doing the door-to-door, man, if you're going, you know, like you said, you're going into buildings, you're going up, you know, maybe 26 flight of stairs or an elevator, that's a long time to think about things when you get rejected. That's right. Where well, a cold call, you could just turn the page and just dial again and you can get somebody who's like complete opposite, wants to talk to you and all that stuff. So you forget about the miss. But you know what? I, I admire those people that, that got on, get on the phone and bang, bang, bang and take that hang up. I could have done that, but it just, you know, I'd rather just climb the stairs and get on the elevator and do and do it that way and get the rejection. But what makes it work for you is the one time that you get in the door. It just changes everything. It's, it's like uh, I know people who golf that say, you know, they love to golf. They're always hitting it badly. But the one time they hit it right, you know, makes them want to go off for five more years. Well, that's how sales is. The one time you get in the door keeps you coming, makes back. you want to come back for that next one uh, really, really quickly. And so you started having a lot of success. And I'm bringing this back from other conversations you and I've had because we've had the privilege to communicate on stuff like this, which is where the real life sensei really comes in. Where in the process did you like catch your stride as a sales rep earlier in your career to know that this would, again, take you to... Larry, who's running global sales for Cisco and all that stuff. So where did you catch your stride? Yeah, that was at Bell Atlantic back in the early 80s. I was selling telephone systems. And um, I was actually selling telephone systems over the phone. And then I was given the opportunity to go outside and go meet with customers at their place of business and selling to middle and large enterprises. I guess mid to early, late 80s, I found out that I could learn technology and that I could communicate it in a way that really showed customers how that technology would benefit them. And I found out that I was a pretty patient guy and was, I was easy to talk to. So businesses, business owners and decision makers could talk to me and I listened really well and I could come back with a solution that showed that I was listening to them. And I caught my stride, you know, selling communications equipment in that mid 80s uh, timeline. And I mean, it really caught fire. I had I had a really, there was a bank in Maryland. It was Maryland National Bank. I'll never forget it. They had like 300 branches all over Maryland. And I, I remember when, when I first closed that deal, it was if, okay, you know, that was in 1985 or something. I'm never going to get out of sales. Matter of fact, I didn't even think I'd want to ever be in sales leadership. I just wanted to be in sales because I got back in those days, I got paid so much money for making that sale in a month. Were you making more than the sales leaders themselves? In that case, with that deal, I actually did make more than my boss, even though at the time my boss was really helpful. <laughs> but but I was cashing in on all the commission. You know, he was getting his bonus for the branch making the making the deal. But as helpful as he was in, in me closing, I was making a ton of money off that deal. Now, did you have a process? Like, so you caught your stride, right? And you started realizing, like, oh my God, like you said, the freedom and what you put into it essentially you can get out of it, you know? Whereas if you're a project manager or in operations, there's a limit, right? Or if you go into like law enforcement, there's a limit on what you can make. Sales is one of that you risk at all. And you, sometimes you live with the great results or the, or the bad results. Was there a process for your success? Or was it just kind of like Wild West, like I'll run with it and I'll make what I make? There was a process. You know, I don't think sales just comes and, you know, you just, you know, it's the Wild Wild West and you just, you're either good at it or you aren't. I actually learned some pretty basic things. One, that I had to spend almost two thirds of my time prospecting. 
And so I always did that through my sales career when I was in the street. It used to be, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, you know, cold calling or something of that nature. But it was. And you didn't have an SDR team, did you? No, none of that. This was, yeah, you were prospecting <laughs> all on your own. You were the SDR team. Absolutely. And, and, and those, <laughs> those sellers that have been around as long as I had know this drill. But you followed that process religiously. Two thirds of your time needed to be prospecting. And the other third of your time, you're turning messages. I had a rule. I prospect, you know, those that two thirds of the time. If I got a bite, I was extremely responsive. That was another part of the plan. Always be very, very responsive to any callbacks that you got. And that was easy to do because you didn't get that many. So anytime you got a somebody that bit on your prospecting, you were very, very responsive, got back to them quickly seeing and getting in front of as many customers as you could. That was also part of the science to me, that you had to be in front because you had to build a funnel. And if you had the right funnel, then you'd be able to achieve the goal that you needed to achieve. And so everything was, okay, my goal is X. I got to have this kind of funnel. I got to prospect two thirds of my time and I got to be extremely responsive. So those are the basics. Then once you get out there in front of customers, it's, you know, it's important that you listen to the customers and find out what their challenges are. But it's almost equally as important as that you know what you're selling. The idea that, you know, there are a lot of sellers who are strictly relationship sellers, and that's great, and some people can get away with that. For me to have credibility with the customer, I had to know the product and be able to tell them why it would work for them or why it would. And so I, I made a point of knowing the technology in my early days. I can't say that that stayed with me forever, but in my early days of selling and when I was on the street, it was important for me to know the technology extremely well so that it wasn't like I had a one-to-one relationship with an engineer or a one-to-two relationship with an engineer. Back in those days, the sales guy was the engineer as well as the seller. And so you got out there in front of customers and you were able to answer, you know, past the first three questions and really define for them why it was a match or why it wasn't. You know, it's funny. If you were to talk to a modern sales rep today, they'd be like, what job were you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but they better like, have, I hope that I hope that the prospecting piece of the, they can relate to the idea that you do have to prospect. I, I don't think that aspect has changed. You know, I'm sure we'll have further discussions on that down the road, you know, with, with what sales is now going, you know, moving towards. I mean, now there's so many different segments to it, right? You've got your sales enablement, you've got marketing, product man. I mean, you got everything. You got CRM systems. You didn't even have those back in the day. I, I, I'm willing to bet, were you using a phone book to like look up leads? Oh yeah, phone book. There, I can't remember all the, there, there were some lists, but we had, you didn't have a CRM. Let's just clarify that for everybody tuning in. You didn't have a CRM. No, there was no such thing. Okay. We had, it's a file cabinet. We had, a, we had notebooks and file cabinets. <laughs> and if another seller was caught going in your drawers, and t- oh, man. <laughs> that was not Lights a, that out, was you not go to the street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you have success there. The process was big for you. And it's funny, you say you weren't looking to go into leadership, but you did. So how, wh- what happened there? Well, I mean, you know, I think this probably happens more often than not. Okay. Uh, it's funny, I was doing well in sales and a sales management role. I was living in Baltimore at the time and sales management role came up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I don't think anybody wanted it. So a role came up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And 
my boss and my boss's boss said they thought I'd be good at it. <laughs> and it's interesting when someone tells you, you think they think you'd be good at doing something, all of a sudden you get a little more self-esteem and you think, well, I think I, yeah, I probably would be good at it. And I can't, I must admit, I, I, you know, I don't remember competing for the role. The next thing I know I was in it. And it's interesting. And I think that's because it was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, nothing against Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. So I got to ask you this real quick to go back. You said, you know, you don't, you're not sure if anybody wanted it. Was it because of the location or was it because you like had to do a turnaround with the organization or like that division? Oh, it was the location. I mean, Har- in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, they roll up the sidewalk at 6 a.m. And I was a young man and geez. Okay. <laughs> you know, it, that was going to so be hard. that's why no one wanted it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was going to be hard. Nothing against Harrisburg. I, you know, okay. The capital of Pennsylvania, great things, but geez, not a lot to do there. And so, you know, but it was also an opportunity to build to a branch that wasn't doing well and turn it around. So it was a turnaround situation. And it was in a location, you know, Harrisburg. And, you know, I had all the way over to Penn State, you know, so State College and then all the way up to Wilkesburg, Scranton, you know, and then, you know, Lancaster and all the little regions around Harrisburg. So it was a, you know, a lot of driving, a very, you know, kind of rural type territory. And, and the company hadn't been doing really well there. And so it was an opportunity to turn it around at the same time. But the reason I took it was basically I was asked. And then the people told me they thought I'd do a good job. I said, well, fine, I'll go do it. They had me convinced I was going to make a, I could make a lot more money. I think that's where I, you know, I got tricked a little bit. I made more money as a seller than I ever made as this sales manager. So yeah, I got to ask you that because I want to like kind of put this to rest with maybe who those out there in your first sales leadership position, are you usually taking a step back in pay? to accelerate more for the growth of your career? Without a doubt. Is it standard across the board? In those days, it was standard across the board. Today, I've seen some people negotiate some leadership roles that make it comparable. But if you were doing really well as a salesperson, very rarely are those first few years in sales leadership going to net you the same type of income. And so, yeah, that, that's a career decision, not a money decision. Usually. And in my day, it was absolutely a career decision. Well, I still see that, though, because really, you know, it's your first time in a leadership role and, you know, you don't have the experience of building out a team or I'm sure your first coaching session had to be, you know, I mean, I messed those things up. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're in control of your own self, it's it's very easy, right? You know who the blame is. But when you're running a team, it's getting everybody to, to fire on all cylinders. And I always find that to be the most unique skill set, right? Because that's really at scale at that point, not just yourself. But the other question I want to ask you is, if you didn't get asked to be in leadership, do you think you would have went down that road? Hard to say. I think that I was really having fun and I had a lot of freedom as a salesperson. I was making a lot of money for that age at that time. I really hadn't put a lot of thought to being a sales leader. I really, it's just, you're making the kind of money that you always wanted to make and you're having the kind of freedom that you always want. And I, you know, I watched my manager, who was a great guy, and he just seemed to be in constant worry about this or that or who wasn't making their number. I, I wasn't one of the guys he worried about, but we had some teammates that weren't doing as well basically was on a team that was pretty damn good. 
But we had a couple of teammates that didn't do very well, and that affected his number and that, his ability to, to make his money and, and get his uh, reputation recognized. So, no, I, you know, I think when they came to me and said, man, you have helped train the sellers that we have today, and we think you can do this. And so I was kind of doing some of the sales management things while I was a seller you know, to help up my teammates, but didn't feel like a move I needed to make. Yeah. Well, I find I find a lot of people, and this is coming from the side of, of recruitment, but even as an individual, like I never thought in a million years I would start my own business. Like never in a million years. I was just more worried about paying bills and doing things. And I find that very interesting when I talk to certain individuals out there who are trying to grow their career, they're so worried about like, they're talking about being VPs and they're individual sellers. And I'm like, I, and, and that's where I wanted to get with you is, you know, what are your thoughts to the young professionals who say that? Well, and I think it's helped me talk to young professionals that when I'm having that discussion with sellers and they tell me, yeah, the next I want to be a sales leader, it makes it easy for me to walk them through what that means so that they understand what the give and take of what they're asking to become down the road, what the give and takes are going to be. And because it was not something that I, you know, had aspiration for early on and it just came about and I found out I was good at it. And so I kept going that, you know, I, I'm able to sit there and talk to them and say, you know, be self-aware. You're really good at what you're doing as a seller and uh, you're having a lot of success. Be self-aware. Are you willing to make these kinds of sacrifices if you go into sales leadership? It's not just, I want a title, I want to be sales manager, I want to be VP of sales. It's not just that. Once I became a sales leader and found out I could do that well, I then said, yes, I want to be a VP of sales one day. Correct. Yeah, because you had a formula that this is working, this is this is different. This is working. Yeah, yeah I, I got this now, and I think I can, you know. Make it better. You know, set my sights on being a VP of sales now. And I did. But before that, I, you know, I got lucky. Somebody said, hey, I think you'll be good at it. I hadn't given it much thought. But you're right. Today's world, most sellers I meet, there are some that say, no, I, I don't want any part of that. And I applaud their self-awareness. There are others who say, this is what I want to do. And you can kind of tell this is not what they're ever going to do. This is, you know, this is not the kind of seller are. Correct. I can already tell because I never, I never thought about going into leadership. I honestly just, I wanted to make, when I was younger, I wanted to make 100,000. That was my goal. Like, that was my number. Swear to God, that was my number. I wasn't making that out of college. I think I was making 35,000, if that. And I just wanted to make 100,000 because I don't know why, I just felt like that was a good number. I didn't care about leadership. I didn't care about conquering the world or being a, a small business owner. Not at all. I just wanted to make money so I could, you know, go out and do stuff that I could never do. And usually I'd ask my parents for money. And so that's where I see a lot of young professionals. They're already thinking five steps ahead as, as opposed to just focusing on like getting good at this one area. And then as like it was presented to you, then you can start being aware. Like, hmm, I haven't thought about that. Maybe maybe leadership would be good. But I get a lot of professionals go, I want to be the VP of sales. And they haven't even mastered a cold call. Yeah. And then that interesting, you know, they've set their sights before. But do you see the same thing though, too? Or am I? Oh, absolutely. Am I, okay, I've, I've I'm seen not it crazy. All my, no, you're not crazy. I mean, <laughs> as a sales leader, you know, when you're sitting down in those coaching sessions with your sellers, 
you hear all kinds of things. And they've set their sights on all kinds of roles. And it's funny because during those coaching sessions, you really are focused on, let's get this role right first. <laughs> let's get you making your quota first. Let's get your, your sales process down correctly first. Let's do all of those things. And you're right. A lot of them have already set their sights on something else before really defining themselves properly in the role that they're in. But, you know, I don't blame that and I don't judge that. I think that you can do both things. And I think a really good seller can be focused on being an expert in their craft at that and also having that ambition that they're going to be a sales leader because they can start that, you know, but you like I can tell. If you're not a team player, if you're not helping your teammates, if you're not doing some of the things that are going to be naturally things you'll have to do as a sales leader, maybe you shouldn't set your sights on on doing anything else but being an individual contributor. Yeah. And kind of actually, you went right where I wanted to go is what are some of the, the selfless things that really separate the good sales leaders from the, eh, like they just, they're a flash in the pan? Well, you know, I think that sales leaders have to have a process as well. They've got to decide what are the right things they need to measure within their teams, right? And if they can come up with a consistent process of measuring the right things, they're going to be halfway there. Meaning, so if I got to come up with, got a product, I've got a solution, I've got a team, and here are the things, if, if I measure these four things properly, I'm halfway there to being a successful sales leader. The other half is, am I coaching my sellers? Am I letting them know where they stand at all times? Am I riding out with my sellers? Am I joining them on sales calls? Am I immediately pointing out places where they did really well and places where they weren't so effective? That gets me another third of the way there or another quarter of the way there. And then I think the last thing is, so I'm doing coaching. I got a process of measuring. The last thing, do my sellers see me as fair? Or do the people that work for me think that I'm looking out for them? I have their back, that I have their best interest at heart. Do they trust me? And I think if you got all, you know, you got half, half is measuring the right things for the business. You know, another quarter is constant coaching. And then the last quarter for me has always been, fairness, I got your back, you can trust me. If you can combine all of those things, I think you can be a pretty successful sales. Yeah. And that's something I see a lot from candidates is they just, I, I don't trust a big reason. It's actually, it's funny. It's not even salary or money related when somebody makes a move. I mean, it's at times there are, right? Because they're just being grossly underpaid. But a lot of it is the fact that they just, they're not getting the mentorship, the coaching. And, and the biggest thing I hear a lot is I do not trust my manager. And that I, happens a lot. And that's what I always found about you. And, and I want the audience to know this is, you know, when I would talk to people that used to work for you in the past, I mean, they always said the most amazing things about you is, is a person like take, take the leader part came next, but they always talked about you as an amazing human being. And I think that's one thing that's probably important for anybody getting into leadership is, you know, the sales reps that work for you are people at the end of the day, they're people too. Thanks for saying that. One of the things I wanted my team to know was that they could trust me and I had their back. That's really important. It's not the only thing that's going to make you successful, though. But it is so important because, as you said, people, if you can keep a good team together, in other words, you're not constantly having high attrition rates. If you can keep 
the good players on your team there, you're going to be a successful sales leader. Because if you can't, then you're always hiring and you're always, you're always trying to train and coach new players in, in a new place. And your performance can never be as well as if you've got a consistently good team and you can keep them together for a long time. Yeah. And, and that's, that's going to be in another episode with you is really the, the go to market and the build out and stuff like that. Cause that, that's very interesting what you did, especially with Tamberg and Cisco and, and Econo that like well known for that. Most people in the industry know you for that. And it's really remarkable, but going back to the, the Bell Atlantic, then you go to another organization, which it seemed to be like that was the next step up. That was your first VP role, which was the Williams Communication. Well, actually joined Nortel as a VP for the New York region. And we sold, Nortel sold our division. So is it Nortel? Because on LinkedIn, yeah, LinkedIn, I'm just going off of LinkedIn. It, it shows Williams Communication first, and then it looks like you got that Nortel bought them or how, what happened there? Yeah, it was just the reverse. So I was with Nortel as a, a VP of sales for the, the New York region. And they sold our division of Nortel to Williams Communication. And that's, that was my first senior leadership role was Williams Communication, where I had responsibility for the uh, United States, moved myself to Houston, Texas, and had responsibility for the United States. So how did you get in that position for, for again, those who are trying to grow their sales career, you were very successful as, as a sales leader. And then was this referred in? Were you recruited or was it, how did that happen? It's funny. There's a combination of things I had. I was being successful at Bell Atlantic. And so I was a sales manager. And mm -hmm. then I got sent to a couple of the outlying uh, regions of Bell Atlantic. They had an office in New Orleans and an office in Chicago. And so I went and became kind of a, the head sales leader in both of those locations and ultimately back to New Jersey. And then I left there to take a VP of sales role in New York. So a couple of things that happened. I was successful at Bell Atlantic, so that was good. And I was willing to relocate. So by, re by my willingness to relocate, I had more opportunities to grow. One of the things I always tell people, if you can, and I, you know, I had a different family situation, but if you can, if you're willing to relocate, the opportunities for sales leadership will come faster. And so that's what happened to me. I moved you know, to Harrisburg. Next thing I know, I was in New Orleans. The next thing I know, I was in Chicago. The next thing I know, I was back in New Jersey, always getting a, a small step up in sales leadership responsibility by doing those things. And so relocating helped me, but also hitting the numbers and meeting all my goals helped me. So they wouldn't have relocated me if I wasn't hitting my numbers. So I was able to do both. And, and so when you hitting numbers, like walk me through the mindset of you as a sales leader, like when you, I'm assuming, right, that you had goals as if you were an individual exactly. contributor, like your company sets you, hey, you know, Larry, you need to do 100 million with your team. And in your head, you've said, I've got to hit 130 or 120. I, I'm just, you know, example. Is that kind of like the mindset? You know, I think that it's funny. I always felt like the company gave me a big enough number. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I wasn't a big negotiator of quota. And I, I find as I became a sales leader, everybody was negotiating quota. Everybody does it nowadays. <laughs> They've got their it. own analytics, man. They look like, hey, your analytics are wrong. This is what the quota is going to be. You're, you're, <laughs> you're so right. Back in those days, they gave you a number. It always 
felt like, geez, I hope I can get this number, much less get 20% over it. And so I never got a number that I was, I went, oh, how do I make this 20%? Every time I got a number, I went, how am I going to get to this number? And, and then you, you start mapping that out. So I didn't, I didn't have that luxury, but I did have the luxury of get a number and I could almost guess what the number would be next the following year, just based on trends from the past. And so I kind of knew where I, where I was going to probably have, what I was going to have to do the following year. So I'd get a number, I'd, you know, plan my strategy. I'd work with my sales team. I'd assign out my quotas. Now I was a big believer in that. This is probably blasphemy, but I was a big believer in over assigning quota. But I was honest with my sellers. We got a, for example, $100 million quota. I'm handing out 110. Okay. So we're going to go after it and we're going to be aggressive trying to get to the number because it's hard to sometimes make your number year after year if, you know, you haven't built any uh, growth from your team in that number. So I would oversign against the number and typically make my quota. And, and that allowed me to be regarded as a sales leader who had been successful. And so when those new roles popped up in the different parts of the country and I was asked and I was willing to relocate, it helped me go from being a sales manager to a sales director to a VP of sales. Going back real quick, was there a time, and for those listening in, where you didn't hit quota? Oh, yeah. As a sales leader, I, I went through a rough patch of a couple of years at Bell Atlantic right before I left Bell Atlantic to go to Nortel. And, and I will say, I missed what I call a rough patch is that I was between 98% and 101% of quota. So I wasn't missing big. Now, I wasn't missing big, but I was missing. And, you know, one of the things, you know, you learn about yourself is, you know, the fact that I left Bell Atlantic to go to Northern Telcom was probably that rough patch. I, you know, I'm not a guy, you know, I believe that if you can't do a job in a great way, you should probably look for a different role and not barely making quota or barely missing quota didn't put me as number one in the company. And it didn't put me in the top five in the company. It just put me as kind of an average leader in the company. And so I felt like I needed to be in an environment where I, and I'm a very competitive guy that I need to be in an environment where I was number one or in the top three, or, you know, in the, in the top echelon of leaders. Once I felt like in that brief period of time, I was, I was kind of just average, probably had a lot to do with me leaving to go to the next company, along with the fact that they were willing to pay me more. <laughs> yeah. And, and going to, you said something, right, which I think is one of the main attributes that makes somebody good. And I don't think it's just sales. I think it's any job you're going to exceed at. But you mentioned competitiveness. How competitive does one have to be in sales? to be successful? Very, very. I mean, I, I don't think that if you're not competitive, if you're not trying to be the best within your group, I mean, it's one thing, you're always trying to make more money. That's one thing. But if you're not trying to be the best against your peers, I don't think you can maintain consistent success. And so if there's a better word than very, it's very, very. <laughs> I think I think you got I think you really have to have a competitive mindset and if you don't then sales is not for you. And then as far as 
you said money motivated. And I've heard you say this before, you know, you look for people that, and this is good for for the younger professionals listening is you talked about when you were at, you know, I think this is most of the companies, your leadership, you look for people that were very process driven or individuals that were very money motivated. Yep. <laughs> I think it's a good combination. Process driven because I don't want somebody to just think, ooh, yeah, I'm good with people so I could be a salesperson. I want somebody that understands that sales is a science and should be treated as such. So therefore, if it's a science, you better have a good process. And I think I know what a good process looks like. And the reason they got to be money motivated is that that's, you know, that's how we're trying to motivate them. So we're trying to motivate them with these great comp plans that allow them to make a lot of money if they do well. And if money doesn't motivate them, then I, you know, my biggest incentive is my comp plan. So that means it's a waste. So I want sellers to understand that sales is a process and have a good understanding of what their process is. But I also want them to be greedy and want to take advantage of this wonderful comp plan that I've designed for them and outpace them. That's how you overachieve and that's how you get sales teams that make their number consistently. And then that's how you get the call up to the big leagues to go to Dell. So transitioning there, how did that happen? Because that seems like, was that the point in your career where it really started to accelerate in that executive level for you? Well, actually, I had achieved a pretty high level at Williams Communication. Okay. How big were Nortel? Because I mean, I know of them, but a lot of people may not. How big was Nortel back in the day? Well, Nortel was probably, I can't remember, but it was a double-digit billion-dollar type company, a soaring stock. And when they sold our division of Williams Communications, our division of Williams was about a billion-dollar business. And so I had a senior leadership role there. The reason I went to Dell was because Williams Communication then sold that business to a private equity firm. <laughs> um, and, and so everything got jumbled up. And I felt like I had, number one, wanted to get out of Houston. And I wanted an opportunity to work for another company because I wasn't crazy about where I was working with the private equity company. So that's one of the first moves that I made that was, okay, I was thinking geography as much as I was thinking career. And I wanted to get to New York, and Dell offered me an opportunity to come to New York. And where was Dell back in the day? Because this was 2002, so Nortel was obviously in the double-digit bill. Where, where was Dell at? Dell was about to hit $50 billion, their first go-round at $50 billion. Oh, wow. Michael Dell had done a tremendous job of growing that company. And they were right before Kevin Rollins took over from Michael Dell. And then Michael Dell came back. So it was 2002. Michael Dell was still in charge and running the company at that point. And they were looking to hit a $50 billion was kind of where they were headed. And the Northeast region that I took over, and I literally took a downgrade from a sales VP to a sales manager to go to Dell in New York City. And I got promoted to sales VP after two years at Dell. And why did you do that? Because I think this is also very interesting too, is I think some people think it's just this rocket trajectory to leadership, but there are ways, there's a circuitous way in the process where you'll make a jump and maybe you're the VP of global sales at a company, but then you'll downgrade to a director to maybe get some type of experience that maybe you wouldn't get at that company. Is that kind of fair to say is there, you know, when you think about those moves or? 
Yeah, it's fair. I mean, there was a variety of reasons, but I guess in that time for me, it was the telecommunications business was catching hell. Dell was a great company. I thought, well, if I can go to Dell and be successful, that's just another notch in my career. And Dell was willing to move me to New York. That's where I wanted to live. So <laughs> there was a couple of things that were riding on that. And so, so I know people that say you should never take a step down to maybe go back up. But, you know, I didn't have that thought. My thought was I can go to Dell as a sales manager and then I can become a sales VP at Dell. And that's what I did. So for people that make moves, you know, you obviously, I think the need to get to New York was much, much greater than the title of the pay. It was. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, nowadays things have kind of changed where, I mean, yeah, I still may need to be in a geographic location, but it's safe to say that, you know, with this, this new environment, you can kind of be anywhere. I mean, you could be in Canada and still do the, the Americas. I mean, that won't happen, but we're kind of heading in that direction where it's not going to matter where you're at nowadays. Correct? You are hundred percent right. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I hadn't even thought about that. You know, back then, if you wanted to be somewhere, you had to move. Correct. <laughs> if yeah. If you want to work a territory. Nowadays, you know. I don't know that if you, you want to be in a Houston, Texas, running the Northeast region, but you're right. Where you're sitting doesn't matter as much. I see at least salespeople where they can work for a big IT provider and they're based in Texas, but they're selling into the Northeast or the Southeast, right? They're not in the territory they're actually working. Yeah, it's so different. It's different yeah. now. It's a little different now. But would you tell somebody who's making a move, and this doesn't matter if it's a sales rep, think about who you'd be working for. Was that something in consideration when you made the move to Dell or? Absolutely. I mean, I thought, wow, it's Dell. You know, it's a big company. Michael Dell. I mean, he's a legend. Did you have, did you have line of sight to him at all? I'm, I'm not sure direct, but. Not direct line of sight because, you know, it was a $50 billion company by then uh, or headed towards a $50 billion company by then. But he was legendary. So, you know, you know, you knew of him. You knew a lot of, I didn't know about Dell's sales culture. I just knew that it was very successful. And, and I felt like it offered me an opportunity to do something and do it really, really well in my career. And it offered me a geographic opportunity, as I mentioned before. So I took it. And yeah, they didn't have an equivalent role that I could get at that point in time. So I took the sales manager role. And that got you back to New York. That got me back to New York. And and then you moved up, it looks like. Yeah, I moved up to sales VP. And Dell ended up being one of the places where I spent five years at Dell and got me ready for a terrific run at Tamburg. It was the hardest sales culture I'd ever been a part of at the time. It was Dell, it was for sure. It's where I had my, one of the, I got promoted which was one of the biggest joys for me because I did exactly what I wanted to do, but I got demoted, <laughs> which is the first time in my career I ever faced that. And so not to bring this to light, but to understand because some people go through that and they get deflated. You clearly rose above that and didn't let that bother you. So walk me just briefly real quick. So you got demoted? I got promoted to a VP level. And then a year later, I got demoted. And it was a, you know, it was devastating. It was devastating because you look at those things as personal failures. But I, you know, I had to look at, okay, why did I get demoted? And at the end of the day, the numbers, my, I felt like my numbers 
were better than somebody that maybe should have got demoted. <laughs> However, they could have been better. My numbers could have been better. And if they had been significantly better, then there wouldn't have been a contest. But Dell went through a rough patch. And I'm not sure which year it was, like 2005. They went through a rough patch. And so they started to cut back on the number of VPs. And if I had distinguished myself as a VP in a much stronger way, I, you know, wouldn't have been me. I wouldn't have been the guy that took the hit, but I didn't. I mean, that's a pretty big shot, Larry, to the ego, right? Oh, yeah. You're at a high level. Is it in your years of, of at the executive level, does that mess with some of the execs out there where just like they just kind of fade away or like? Yeah, I, I guess I'm an example of, I, so I got demoted and then the following year I left and went to Tamburg. <laughs> so I did it for a year. I stayed another year there and then I went to Tamburg. I don't believe in demotions as a sales leader. I don't think that if a person can't do the job that they're in, you're better off just letting them go. Okay, so just to clarify, like you don't believe in demotions. Like If somebody's not qualified, they've got to go. Yeah, I think if your job is VP of sales and people don't believe you're doing a good job at it, then instead of demoting you, they should just get rid of you, um, let you go do something, find something that you can do better. So I just don't believe in downgrading people. I think that was a devastating hit for me. And I knew the moment it happened that I was not going to stay at Dell. So, you know, I'm not going to stay here. You change your trajectory. And I think most yeah. people think that way. So demoting them, you're, you're not doing your business any good because they're just going to leave. So you might as well make that decision for them. Well, so then you did. And, and did. Yeah. So how did that happen? I started looking. From the moment I was demoted, I started looking for a new job. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like. Did like how did that like did you apply directly again agency or like no, how did that I, did you know a somebody? A friend of mine was running Tamburg. And who was that? Rick Snyder was president of Tamburg Americas, and I started. I knew I was better than that, <laughs> and so I reached out to him, him. And it just so happened is that he had a VP of sales job for the East. No way. So did you get promoted? Because it looks like it shows VP of North America commercial sales. But when you first joined, you were the Northeast? I was running the Northeast. And then I started running the whole country at Tamburg. And then we realigned and Rick went off into a, another senior role. And I became president of the Americas. And I, I had a counterpart, Joe Brunson, who was president of Federal. And we were running the Americas. And so who else was on that team? Because there's some pretty well-known names in our industry today that were part of the, because I always hear the Tamburg days. Tamburg days. It's like the movie Sandlot. Like, <laughs> yeah. So who was on that team? Well, we were reporting to Frederick Halverson, who was the CEO of Tamburg at the time, who's been a great business leader over the year. He's the guy who, the founder of Econo, he and uh, O.J. Wingate. O.J. Wingate, who's well-known in the industry right now in the collaboration space, was running Europe at the time, I think. And there was a Gare Olson who was also running global accounts at the time. So the Tamburg sales organization was a, a pretty strong sales organization. 
I mean, it was like the the was it the '98 All Star with was it Jordan <laughs> Mullins? I mean, it was like it was like that's that's the lineup we're, we're dealing with here. I would I would just say that the the sellers. <laughs> I mean, that's a strong lineup. <laughs> that's right. They're the sellers on the team that I had and the sales leaders on that team were extraordinary. Because you guys did a few different runs too, which we'll get into. It sounds like correct. Yeah, they were extraordinary, extraordinary leaders, extraordinary sales folks. I mean. My success is because I had such a great team. And and interestingly enough, you know, I tell, I inherited, I didn't get there and have to hire a whole bunch of great people. There were some great people there. Which that doesn't always happen, right? Because usually you're going in and it's kind of like. Yeah, you go and turn around. This wasn't a turnaround <laughs> yeah. situation. There were a bunch of great people there. And, you know, my job was to keep it great <laughs> and make it greater. And hopefully uh, people believe it. But sometimes that's tough to do too, though. It is. It is tough to do, but I'd rather have that kind of team than the other. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And so then that's where you sell to Cisco for, I want to say it was a little north of $3 billion, correct? About $3.4, $3.5 billion. Okay. And then you naturally with the sell, you become the VP of sales for a collaboration on, on that side of the house for Cisco. Well, it wasn't that natural, but yeah, we, we People who who have been acquired by Cisco know that that first year you're there, you're kind of autonomous and you're still doing your thing. And so it still felt like Tamburg within Cisco. But then that second year, you're kind of integrating. And I was fortunate enough to become the VP of collaboration for them in the U.S. Well, and then you, it sounds like the same team you had at Tamburg, you guys went and started Econo. <laughs> kind of, sort of. <laughs> so you go there. How did that happen for you? Akano or? Akano, yeah. Well, you know, Frederick Albertson, who was CEO of Tamburg, left the company was acquired. He left and went off and, and started doing some different things. And, you know, after we had gone through our non-competes with, you know, I'd done the time that I needed to do with Cisco, you know, gone through our non-competes. He talked to me about an opportunity that he was thinking about. And he had put together some developers and wondered if I wanted to come and, you know, do the global sales leader for the commercial team. And it was the first time I had done a startup, you know, from the ground up. I mean, were you day one? Like, we're talking zero run rate? From a commercial standpoint, yes. Day one from a zero run rate. Some of the folks that I knew from my Tamburg days thought that would be a good thing for them as well. And they were very, very talented folks, as I said before, and they proved it again at Econo. And so you guys ended up doing really well. And if you don't mind sharing, you go from zero run rate to I want to say it was it was around 150 mil. No, no, not that high. We were a couple years. We were only, I guess, two and a half years in. We went from zero to 50 million, a little over 50 million, before we were acquired. And you started making noise in that space, and that's where Cisco came knocking, said we'd like to. Yeah, you know, there's a lot to it, but yeah, that's pretty much what happened. In simple form, <laughs> yeah. And so then you go back to Cisco. I go back to Cisco. <laughs> as the AVP. As, uh, at that time, Akano had developed new technology of a, a, a video board, and Cisco had an app then at the time that they were marketing called Spark. And if you're in the industry, you'll remember that. And we kind of combined them together. And so I got kind of an AVP title of Spark Sales. and we were selling this board and we were selling, you know, the app as well. It was a good effort at the time. It was a, it would have been something that would have replaced WebEx. But, you know, 
WebEx was so ingrained in the marketplace and such a commercial success. It was just, it was a challenge at that time. Spark was going to be the new thing for Cisco. It's just never, you know, I think it ultimately, I'm not, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but ultimately I think they combined the Spark capability into the WebEx and chose the WebEx brand as the way to go because everybody was so familiar with WebEx. It's kind of hard for a big company to turn that boat. Yeah. And, you know, now you go to Jazz Networks, which... Whole new thing, cybersecurity. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't spent much time in that effort. That was ex- exciting. It was fun to get that one, to get that going. And I would say now, you know, now being retired, right, I'm sure you're looking back and, and seeing all the accomplishments, you know, for those, again, who are either starting their sales career or in, like, the part that's going to make them great or going to shove them down another path, not everybody gets access to someone like you. So what would you say to somebody? What are a couple key pieces of advice from someone who's been there, done that, has failed, but then succeeded? You know, I'm always curious about these things. You know, I think you're asking if if you're thinking about a sales career. Or in it though too, right? I mean, I- Or if you're in it, you know, I think the biggest thing, and I tell everybody, if you're in it, be self-aware. Are you doing well? I mean, are you successful at what you do? And if it's not going well, then maybe you shouldn't be in it. In sales, it's so easy to measure whether it's going well or not. Your paycheck tells you and you're, you know, are you making your goals? So if you're missing your goals and the paycheck's low, then you're not doing so well. And so be honest with yourself, look in the mirror and don't cast blame. Even in the times where I struggled in my sales career, no one's had a perfect career. You know, I accepted accountability for what happened to me. I just, I've been fortunate that I've been mostly successful. But you have to accept accountability and be self-aware. I'm good at this and this. And I would always say to her, if you're in the job now, if you're doing well and having success and you enjoy it, then that's one thing. But if you're struggling, don't struggle forever. Don't think that just because you got a sales job, because you're right, if you interview well, and you know this, Chris, if you interview well, you can probably get another sales job somewhere else and just suck at it there. So you kind of go from sales go to from that. base salary to base <laughs> yeah, salary to base salary. That's right. You could just be the most successful interviewee. You that's know? right. But I don't but recommend you know. that. But <laughs> but you know if you're but, good or not. You know. <laughs> you know. I always find this amazing that people that are good at interviewing and then not do well in sales that still blows my mind, dude. <laughs> well, yeah. if you convince the team to hire you and then you don't do it, I mean, like. They're saying, essentially, they're saying you could do the job. Yeah. But then you don't perform. I I never understood that about people who could sell themselves in an interview to some of these amazing companies and then not perform. But I thought what's really interesting what you say is accountability. Yeah. Because that's the biggest thing I see. And and I had to learn that too. It's tough when when you get your ego struck. But again, you have to look back. And that was something that, it sounds like that was a, a big part in, in your success is, okay, I, you know, I messed up here, but it's not the end of the world. I'm not dead. I'm still going. Would you, were you big on asking for help and coaching or was that not like it was today? Because now you got tools, you got, you know, you got social media that's kind of calling people out, which I don't agree with. But again, the coaching aspect of things. Yeah, I had some great coaches along the way. I mean, from the time I first started selling to my first sales leadership roles, 
you know, and through the Tamberg, Akano days, you know, there were always people that were around me that challenged my thinking and were great coaches. And I think that's important. And there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And I think that throughout my career, I didn't know they were called sponsors, but I've had people sponsor me and help me get to the next level in a lot of different ways. I mean, you know, I even, I've had great success. You know, early in my career, I had really great success. And I, I was on this constant climb. And even when I got to Dell and I, I climbed again, even when I had my setback, I still had people in my life who were sponsoring me to good things because I had done a lot of good work. So even, even through the Tamberg and Econo days, I'm grateful for the folks that I've worked with. You know, I've named a few, OJ and Frederick and Joel, Rick Snyder. But I'm most grateful for the folks that worked with me, you know, that were part of my team that busted their ass to make the teams successful because, you know, without them, you really, really end up nowhere. I couldn't be retired today. <laughs> and that's got to be one of the most amazing things is, is, is what you do as a leader, a mentor, and advisors. You know, a lot of those people that used to work for you are now doing bigger and better things. Yeah, a lot of them are doing a lot of good things. And, I, you know, we have a lot of laughs. Those that are still in collaboration over at places like Zoom and Logitech and all those places. It's funny how video is back in vogue again. We have a lot of chuckles about that. Yeah, it's definitely grown. So I think this is a great place to to stop. And I mean, man, I can't thank you enough. This has been very interesting just to like, I feel like a fly on the wall just listening to you. I could do it all day. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> no, we can't. <laughs> but no, I thank you so much. And for those who have tuned in, thank you for joining and following and until next time, we're out. Yeah.